keeping to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're really ready to look at verse 10. But I think um, I ran out of time last week on Communion Sunday uh, with some of the final points in, uh, in verse 9. So I want to just make sure we're solid on that, and then we'll advance and gain some new ground here this morning. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. To make sure that we're filled with the Holy Spirit this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Confess any sin that needs to be confessed privately before you and the Lord, and prepare your heart for eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you, unworthy, but made worthy. None of us deserves to be here, Father, but your Son deserves everything. He is the heir of all things. He is the beloved Son in whom you are well pleased. And Father, I thank you that in his name and positionally placed in Christ, we can stand before you in our priesthood today and receive instruction. I thank you that we enter within the veil that is his flesh, that we all stand before the glory of of your truth. So, Father, bless our time this morning. Open the eyes of our understanding. Open the ears of our hearing. Feed us this morning, Father. We need your word. I thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, there's been a lot that's brought us to this chapter, but this chapter is deep. This chapter takes everything in the first nine chapters and boils it down and lays it out there as as just a powerful, powerful thing. Those sacrifices could not do what Jesus did on the cross. The law was a shadow. Those sacrifices over and over and over again, all they did was they pointed forward to a coming sacrifice. They never took away sin. They were reminders of sin over and over again. But Jesus came to please the Father, and that's key. We've got to recognize that. So, As we look at these verses leading us down to verse 10, we see in verse 3, in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. Every time the Day of Atonement came around, it was, here we go again, another reminder of sin. And, And they'll do it again next year and the year after that and the year after that. It never stops until the one for whom these things were all prepared, until Jesus comes and offers the once and for all sacrifice, which he did for us on the cross. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus took away sin. When he stood at the uh, River Jordan to be baptized, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All right, and so this is what he's come to do. Verse 5, when he comes into the world, he says, this is so powerful. We spent the last couple of weeks dealing with this. Remember, God the Son left heaven in order to be born of a virgin. So he preceded his own birth. That's not true for you and me. We don't precede our own birth. But Jesus did precede his own birth because he's been God from eternity past. He is always God. And so now he comes into the world. And when he comes into the world, he is quoting Scripture. When he comes into the world, he is quoting this passage here from Psalm 40. When he comes into the world, he says, "...sacrifice and offering you have not desired." but a body you have prepared for me. He is entering into the body of his humanity that was born of a virgin in a Bethlehem stall. 
and uh, we know the story well. He goes on to say, in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. What pleases God? What does not please God? Animal ritual does not please God. Animal ritual is shadow doctrine that points ahead to what really does please God, and that's the work of His Son. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I have come to do your will, O God. I have come to do your will, O God. And so Jesus Christ, eternal fixation on doing the will of God the Father is inseparable from Jesus Christ eternally pleasing God the Father. We say that again. Doing God's will and pleasing God are two sides of the same coin. If you're not doing God's will, you're not pleasing God. If you're not subjecting your will to the will of God, you're not pleasing God. Jesus had to say, not my will but thine be done. We all have to say, not my will but thine be done. The minute we stop doing that, when we throw God's will off to the side and decide that uh, my will be done, <laughs> well, then I'm pleasing me. I'm not pleasing God. And that's, uh, that's a very important principle that we all want to recognize. All right. And so after saying above, verse 8 and 9, repeat that and make the point to divide the verse in half after saying sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired nor have you taken pleasure in them. And he breaks the sentence there. You notice in verse 8 by reminding us that these are offered according to the law. The law doesn't please God. Faith pleases God. Grace pleases God. Then he said, and in verse 9 he finishes the point, Behold, I have come to do your will. So coming to do the will of God the Father. That's what he came to do. And he did it from day one to the end. His whole earthly ministry was doing the will of the Father. And even before his incarnation, he's always been doing the will of God the Father. When Jesus Christ created the universe, why did he create the universe? Because it was the will of God the Father for him to do so. God was the architect that designed the universe. Jesus was the carpenter that built it. And we have Proverbs 8 and other passages that, that, play that, that display that as being true. All right. I have come to do your will. So when we get to verse 10 and we ask ourselves, by this will, by this will, the will of the Father in sacrificing His Son, by this will we have been uh, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's by the will of God the Father that you and I are sanctified, that He was well pleased, that He was satisfied. If God the Father is not propitiated by the cross, you and I can't be saved by the cross. You've got to recognize that. It's by the will of God the Father who was propitiated, satisfied, pleased, accepted, infinitely accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because of that, by the will of the Father, you and I are sanctified. Once and for all. Aren't those sweet words? The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What a contrast. And if you miss it, just read Hebrews again. Read Hebrews again because, you know, the, the chapter starts with the over and over and over again sacrifices. They offer them continually. They offer them over and over again. They offer them year by year. It's a point that's going to come back in verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices. Like, here we go again. Time after time after time. Jesus, one time, one time only, 
once and for all when he went to the cross and took away our sin. All right? Once and for all. Never to be repeated again. And that's the, uh, that's the point that's being made here. The contrast of the many from the one. All right, so by this will we have been sanctified. The will of God. The will of God the Father. This was Jesus Christ's focal point in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was His focal point on the cross of Calvary. It has always been His focal point. And if we're going to be imitators of Christ, what do you think our focal point needs to be? We need to be locked into the will of God the Father. If we're not, then we're not Christ-like because He was locked into the will of God the Father. We should be familiar with these. Matthew 26, 39. It's a marvelous uh, cooperation for uh, Hebrews 10, 10. But he's praying and he's trying to ask himself, is there another way? Is there some way to avoid the cross and still please the Father? No. Is there some way to avoid the cross and still be in the will of God? No. And he has to conclude that. But he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He voices it out loud. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to think about it. It's not a sin to talk about it if you're talking to God in prayer. (laughs) Saying, Father, help. Okay? And just be honest with the Lord. Lord, this appears to be your will, and I don't want to do it. This appears to be your will, and this... Is there something else? Is there any other way? And then, like Jesus, stop yourself and say, no, I know. There is no other way. I knew that. Okay? Remember, the words of a man in despair belong to the wind. Uh, it says that in the book of Job. So just, you know, you're saying, you're saying things because you hurt. Your soul hurts. So you say it. You even pray about it. But then you stop and say, okay, because God is the one who comforts. And you say, all right, Lord, your will be done. And I'm going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And whatever else happens, I'm not going to fear because he's with me. So he does say, if it could be possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Always take it back to the will of God. Always take it back to the will of God. In everything, in all your prayers and all that you do. And say, Father, I'm going to do this. I want to do this. But if that's not your will, Lord, then close the door and don't let me do it. Shut that door and, and, and just give it to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to do this. We did that in building this property here. And if every step of the way. And he shut many doors. And then the other doors he left open. We said, all right, Lord, well, that's what we'll do. And we stayed humble every time. He opened a door every time he shut a door. And uh, that's the, uh, the issue here. So in Gethsemane, he kept the will of God the Father as his focal point. Same thing when he was on the cross. John nineteen twenty eight and 30. He went to the cross focused on the will of God the Father. And so uh, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. Well, why? Why doesn't He just, He finished saving us. He finished paying for our sins. Why doesn't He just, uh, uh, you know, deliver up His Spirit? Okay? Go ahead and die and get buried. Why does He have to have one last drink? Because it was written in the Scriptures. There was a prophecy yet to be fulfilled. And he will not let even one small prophecy go unfulfilled. There's one last thing. And so a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine, 
upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So think about it. Even those details. You know, our God is the God that counts the hairs on your head. Do you think he pays attention to detail? He's got every last detail. Every day you live, every moment of every day, every time a coin gets flipped, the lot is cast into the lap, but each decision is from the Lord. Okay? God is sovereign over everything in our universe, and we want to appreciate that. So he's focused on the will of God at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's focused on the will of God while he's hanging on the cross. And then he offered himself. Now here's a terrible question to try to ask a young preacher on his ordination exam. Did Jesus offer his body or his soul or his spirit? And it's a trick question because he offered all three. All right. And we've got scripture to point to all of it. And so it's kind of curious to see what answer you get depending upon what verse maybe the, the, uh, the young pastor has in mind while he's sweating it out trying to pass his ordination exam. But Hebrews 10.10 says, we have been sanctified, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of, what does it say? The body of Jesus Christ once for all. That he had to be embodied to bring the offering. That he couldn't come as the angel of the Lord and go die on the cross. He couldn't be the burning bush and die on the cross or, or the pillar of fire or cloud by day. All of those were manifestations of Jesus Christ, but not until he was born of a virgin and walked this earth in true humanity could he go to the cross and offer himself, the totality of himself as body, soul, and spirit. And so I like to think of it this way. Jesus offered his body, laid down his soul, and yielded up his spirit. Jesus offered his body, laid down his soul, and yielded up his spirit spirit. And we've got verses for all of these. Of course, Hebrews 10.10 mentions his body. Uh, Isaiah 53.10 is where he laid down his soul. That one uh, gets missed in English a lot, but it is the Hebrew word for soul. It's nephesh in Isaiah 53.10. Depending on the English translation you're reading, it may probably just say himself. Um... The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render his soul or himself as a guilt offering. Remember, the real you is your soul. It's not your body. Your, your body is getting old and, and skin cells are dying and getting rebuilt. And, and every seven years, it's a whole new you anyway, as far as your body is concerned. Um, you don't have a, I think that's right. You don't have a, a cell in your body today that you've had more than seven years because that's the um, maybe i'm wrong on that but in any event the real soul the real you is your soul and uh, that's what we have here so he offered himself he offered his soul as a guilt offering so he's promised that he would see his offspring and he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the lord will prosper in his hand Isaiah 53.10, talking about his soul. And then in verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, God the Father will see it and be satisfied. This is the basis for the Father's propitiation. We also have Matthew 20 and verse 28 with reference to the soul of Jesus Christ. Matthew 20 and verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve to be served, but to serve and to give his psuche, his soul, his life as a ransom for many. 
John 10, a whole bunch of verses in John 10 about his soul. I love John 10. It's a great shepherding chapter with a good shepherd who lays down his soul for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his psuche, his soul for the sheep. This is not just about, you know, uh, going up against a lion or a bear and risking physical harm or physical death to rescue a, a physical sheep. So much bigger than that. The good shepherd is going to the cross and he's laying down his soul so that you and I can have eternal life because we are his sheep. And see, so have it in verse 11, verse 15. The Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my soul for the sheep. He's doing so because of his intimacy with God the Father and his intent to do the Father's will. Verse 17, for this reason my Father loves me. This is the the fellowship that Father and Son have because I lay down my psuche so that I may take it up again. That I may take it up again. And uh, that's a permission he had from his Father. All right. And then the last reference in John is John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his soul, his life, for his friends. No one has great, there's no greater love than this. To lay down one's soul. And that's what Jesus is doing. There's no human sacrifice that can do that. I mean, a soldier can throw himself on a grenade to save his platoon. But to lay down your soul to redeem humanity, Jesus and Jesus only can accomplish this and does this. So Jesus offered his body, laid down his soul, and yielded up his spirit. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he says those words on the cross. And we already read, it's in Matthew 27, 50. It's uh, paralleled in Luke 23, 46, and paralleled in John 19, 30. That's the one we read earlier. All right, so that's what we have, body, soul, and spirit. And that's what you and I have, body, soul, and spirit. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have body, soul, and, and living human spirit. If you are an unbeliever, uh, just born uh, in Adam without Christ, well, then you have a body and a soul and a dead human spirit. That dead human spirit needs to be made alive. And that's what happens when you're born again, is that it is quickened, it is made alive uh, by faith in Christ. And so if you are a believer, then you have a living human spirit, your trichotomous rather than the dichotomous unbeliever with uh, simply body and soul. The soul offering of Jesus Christ brought soul pleasure to God the Father. The, the, sin, the soul offering of Jesus Christ brought soul pleasure to God the Father. Isaiah 42, 1, a soul pleasure. And this is so lost in our, in our world, oh my, all right? The soul pleasure, soul love, not just the bodily offering. There's additional significance because of the bodily offering, but start with the soul. Start, if you don't start with the soul, you've lost all meaning to the body. The soul offering of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42.1 Remember this? Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Jesus has a soul. God the Father has a soul. Remember, there are two people. The Holy Spirit is a third person. Three people in this trinity. One God. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. 
We can appreciate that. It hasn't happened yet, by the way. <laughs> We're not in the millennium yet. The kingdom's not here. Satan's not yet bound. But it will happen. It's going to happen soon. So get your faith where it needs to be. It's not going to be at the ballot box. We're not going to vote in perfect presidents or perfect government. That Perfect government is waiting. A perfect environment is waiting until Jesus Christ returns and brings in the millennial kingdom. But notice, the soul offering of Jesus Christ brought soul pleasure to God the Father. Beyond that, the bodily offering of Jesus Christ has additional significance as the Word became flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. Romans 8.3 We already know John 1.14 how the Word became flesh. You can save time and not turn there. But Romans 8.3 He condemned sin in the flesh. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why is that? What's the application? So that the requirement of law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Praise God that the God-man, Jesus Christ, in the flesh condemned sin in the flesh so that you and I are redeemed, so that you and I aren't uh, enslaved by the flesh, or we shouldn't be enslaved by the flesh any longer. We can have victory even over this fallen man, even over this fallen flesh. This no good thing that dwells within us is as nasty, but we can walk by means of the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And that's only possible because Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. That's a a blessing for us there. It goes on. You can read uh, verses 5 through 8 or 5 through 11 and see that it's all about being in fellowship, confessing your sins, walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. Everything we have in Galatians 5 we have also here in Romans chapter 8. And it's only possible because Jesus came in the flesh and condemned sin in the flesh. Had he been the angel of the Lord, this wouldn't have happened. Okay? Also, we enter within the veil, which is his flesh. Hebrews 10.20. Now this is further down in the chapter. We're not ready to, to really fully develop it yet, but we can at least look at it and we can go, aha, that's what it says. Okay? Remember the tabernacle had a veil in between the holy place and the most holy place? And who could go through who could go in there? Just one guy, one day a year. Okay? And what was that veil made out of? It wasn't flesh. <laughs> it was a fine twisted linen, right? It was a it was in any event. Only one guy could go in there, one day a year, with blood not his own. And then he had to come back out. You and I, on the other hand, we all get to go in there in the reality, in the heavenly places, because the veil is his flesh. And so we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Not his death on a cross, not uh, anything else, his humanity, his flesh, his embodied humanity, his incarnate humanity. The incarnate humanity of Jesus Christ. That's the veil. And so do you think it's significant? Why why do we study the life of Christ? Because that's the veil. Identifying with His life and ministry then uh, orients us to what it means to be pleasing to the Father, to be obedient to the Father, to be walking according to a life purpose, to be operating in our Melchizedek priesthood. 
to say, not our will, but thine be done. We've got to enter within the veil that is his flesh. So we'll have more to say on that when we get to verse 20. All right. So by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Since it's the will of God that saved you, what do you think it can be to lose that? Can you throw that away? How do you throw away your salvation when it wasn't your will that made it happen? It was God the Father's will that made it happen. It was the will of the Father through the death of His Son to sanctify you. And it's a once and for all event. The Father's never going through that again. The Son's never going through that again. And the idea that you can lose that or throw that away is unthinkable. All right. Back to this contrast again. Notice the author of Hebrews loves to repeat himself over and over. You notice he's kind of redundant and repetitive. A lot of times he goes back over something he said earlier and he says it again in a different way. The truly great preachers all do that. All right. Verse verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. This verse is actually written in the present tense and it's proof, I think it's conclusive for folks that want to try to date the writing of Hebrews after 70 AD, after the temple is destroyed. Uh, This is a present Present activity, those, those Levites are still at it when the author writes this book to the Hebrews. They're standing daily ministering. So it's daily, it's over and over again, and it's never getting anything done. Daily, over and over again, no eternal results. And standing all the time. Standing. Jesus sits down. That's the point he makes here. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So it's not repeated. It's not over and over. It's not without effect. It is once and for all. It is eternally effectual. And then he takes his seat. Remember all those other high priests, they went through the veil, they did their thing, they came back out. And they had to go back next year. Jesus went in. Did he come back out? He passed through the heavens, was seated at the right hand of God the Father. No other high priest did that. Plenty of high priests went through a veil, but then they came back out through that same veil, continued on on earth. Jesus ascended on Easter Sunday, uh, rose on Easter Sunday, and ascended to heaven. He has taken his seat at the right hand of God. And so we have important principles there as well. Those guys are standing, but Jesus sat down. The author of Hebrews goes through this again and again and again, how how he took his seat. It was a seat that no angel was entitled to. It was a seat that could only be taken at the Father's invitation. You don't just sit there until the Father asks you to sit there, invites you to sit there, welcomes you to sit there. So those guys are standing. When you read through uh, and you see the priestly service, every time there's priestly service that's mentioned, it's standing. Deuteronomy 18, they're standing. Verse 5, The Lord your God has chosen Him and His sons from all your tribes to stand and serve in the name of the Lord forever. 
Levitical priesthood was a standing up kind of priesthood. I mean, where was the, where was the chair in the tabernacle? Let me think. Altar, laver, candlestick, table, altar, mercy seat. The only chair in the tabernacle was the mercy seat, and the high priest wasn't sitting there. He was spreading blood on it, okay? There's no chair in the tabernacle, no chair in the temple. And that's curious. You know, Orthodox churches have no chairs. You're all sitting in these cushioned chairs. Go to, go to Ukraine, come to Ukraine with me sometime, and I'll take you to an Orthodox church. No chairs. Everybody stands. You light your candles and you stand. And you smell the incense and you chant. They have actually, some of the liberal churches have started to, they've put little temporal seats for, for old people. They've, they've actually started to make compromises, but it took them 2,000 years to make those compromises. Typically, you go in an Orthodox church, there's, everybody stands for the duration of the service. How weird is that? All right. You guys complain when you have to stand for three hymns. All right. Jesus took his seat. And you know, when he makes this statement, I think it's profound. When he makes this statement here, all those guys are standing, but he sat down. Between verse 11 and verse 12, that's, that's something else. But he said it before. He said it in chapter 1. He said it in chapter 8. He's going to say it again in chapter 12. He says it again and again. Hebrews 1, 3. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of His power. When He made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's Hebrews 1.3. So we're three, we're three verses into the book and the author makes the point that Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand in heaven because that is important in the, in the Melchizedek priesthood. He has to be there at the Father's right hand. Every time an accusation comes... Our advocate is seated right there at the Father's right hand. It's a perfect place for, uh, for him to intercede on our behalf. In chapter 8, if you think I'm overemphasizing this point, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 says, uh, I'm not. The main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So I don't think it's possible for me to make a big deal, too big a deal out of this because the author of Hebrews says the main point in what has been said is this. Our Savior is seated right there, victorious, glorious, interceding on our behalf. A minister in the true sanctuary, the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. It'll come back, of course, the third time here in chapter 10. A fourth time he repeats himself. Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Remember this? We run with endurance the race that's set before us. This is our command. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Keep your eyes on the Lord. You'll keep running that race. You'll never go off track. Get your eyes off the Lord, you're off track every time. Like Peter walking on water. Looking to the Lord, he's walking on the water. He starts looking around at the wind and the, and the, and the, the waves. Took his eyes off the Lord, he starts to sink. All right, that's not an accident. That's a metaphor. 
You're supposed to learn. And you know what? Jesus did the same thing. Who did he keep his eyes fixed on? His Father. Yeah, the joy set before him. It says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so this emphasis is uh, truly a joy to think about, all right? Those guys are standing, but Jesus sat down. The contrast between standing and sitting, vivid. It's a priestly contrast. You know what else it is? It's a judicial contrast. In a courtroom, (laughs) and uh, maybe you've been to court, maybe I don't want to know, all right, but whatever. (laughs) You've seen a movie where a person went to court, and as the accused was, what's the, the command is all rise. You have to stand because you're the accused. And uh, you're going to be adjudicated. For better or for worse, it's going to happen, okay? But you have to stand. Who takes his seat? The judge takes his seat, all right? And then in our culture, once the judge takes his seat, then the defendant is also allowed to take his seat, but not always. In the ancient world, you would stay standing before your judge, okay? And biblically speaking, the judge takes his seat, you are still standing before your bema, before your bema seat, standing until such time as you are either justified or executed, okay? As the case may be. And so some of these are interesting as well. Uh, just prophetically, eschatologically, uh, the, the glories of Jesus having been seated means that, uh, of course, not only is he pleasing to the Father in his priestly role, but he's also accepting the judgment function that he's been given because all judgment has now been given to the Son. All judgment has been given to the Son. And so we've got um, the prophecy of Daniel that, uh, you know, 600 years before our Savior. Let me read Daniel 7. And, um, and of course, this is Old Testament, so they don't know about the church or the bride of Christ. The mystery doctrine is not yet revealed. Uh, we don't know that all judgment will be given to the Son as of yet, because the Son himself has to stand before his Father. And that's what we see here. And so in verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up. Plural. Why do we need plural thrones? And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Singular. Why do we need plural thrones and one guy sitting down? Well, Daniel will never learn. And this passage does not develop it. But we will learn in the New Testament when all judgment is given to the Son and the Son needs more than one seat because the Son has a bride and that bride, the body of Christ, will be seated with him when we judge the world. But here we just have a bunch of empty seats. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels are burning fire. You want to stand in that court? That seems frightening. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. And notice, thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. So there it is. He is seated, they are standing. The court sat, the books were opened, and then we switch scenes back to earth again for verse 11. (laughs) All right. 
back to Antichrist, back to tribulation, back to the beast and all the it's a fun chapter, a lot of back and forth between earth and heaven here in this chapter. But skip down to verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions. I think Daniel had a series of dreams either over consecutive nights or maybe he would wake up from one nightmare, go use the bathroom, come back, go back to sleep again. And then he would get the next part of the vision, okay? And it would scare him and he'd wake up, you know. Anyway, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Jesus quoted this verse and the Sanhedrin went bonkers. The high priest tore his robes. The son of man coming on the clouds, blasphemy. As far as the high priest was concerned, Jesus said, I'm just fulfilling scripture. One like a son of man was coming. He came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. This we see unfolded in the book of Revelation with men from every tribe, tongue, language. Dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You and I have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We want to be clear on this, and we'll talk about this some more as we get into chapter 13 of Hebrews. By contrast, can I give you just one more extra credit passage? How about Revelation chapter 20? Just in case you want to see where you and I take our seat. As 1 Corinthians 6 says, we will judge the world. John 5 says, all judgment is given to the Son. So if all judgment is given to the Son, why will we judge the world? Let the Son do that. But we're in the Son. Remember, we're in Christ. And so all of these passages are true. They're not contradictory and, confl- and conflicting. They're complementary, and, and we uh, can synchronize them with no problem. Revelation 20 and verse 4, I saw thrones, and they sat on them. What a difference. From Daniel 9, when there were thrones, but only the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now there's thrones, and they have their seat. Judgment was given to them. And you and I get to sit in judgment with Jesus Christ as tribulational saints are resurrected, as Old Testament saints are resurrected. When uh, Daniel is resurrected and stands before us to receive his reward. How humbling is that? When Job is resurrected to, to stand before us and receive his reward. How glorious is that? These are heroes. Men of whom the world was not worthy And we in Christ are going to be judging at their resurrection. All right. It's a glorious thing. The present time is a time of waiting. What's he doing sitting there? Waiting. Sitting sitting at the right hand of God and waiting. Waiting. Well, how long is this going to take? Waiting. No, thank God it's taken as long as it has sat down at the right hand of God. Then the first word from verse 13 says, waiting. Waiting from that time onward, meaning ever since then, up until now, up until the time the author of Hebrews is writing Hebrews, Jesus is still seated at the right hand of God the Father, waiting, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. God the Father is fashioning the footstool. It's not done yet. Waiting. 
The present time is a time of waiting. So I don't want to wait. <laughs> oh well. All right. It's the plan of God. It's what He designed it for. The bride is waiting for the rapture. The groom and the bride are waiting for the footstool. The Father's fashioned footstool. Can I find some more F's to put in there? The Father's fashioned footstool for His foes, waiting for His enemies to be made a footstool for His feet. You know, when He goes forth, He goes forth and He conquers. He's going to put His feet on that footstool. But they're not yet prepared. And really, it's the grace of God that desires for none to perish. It's the grace of God that's delaying. It's the grace of God that's giving a gospel to this lost and dying world so that His enemies can become His bride. So that His enemies can repent and get saved and, and, and be delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And so we should not be... Um, hasty in this. We should not be disappointed in this. I think it's very human, very carnal to, you know, be waiting for, for them to get theirs. Well, wait a minute. Why, why, uh, why shouldn't I get mine too? I mean, why do I deserve? Why do they deserve and I don't? That's wrong. And so the rapture of the church hasn't happened yet. But I know if it happened last year, there's some folks that wouldn't have been saved. They would have been left behind in the tribulation to face Antichrist and to face Satan they would have been part of the footstool. But because the rapture didn't happen last year, there were folks that got saved this year. The folks that have gotten saved. You know, and so where do we draw that line? Say, well, anytime after 1973 is fine because that's when I got saved. (laughs) All right. Well, wait a minute. I'm sure there's people in this room that didn't get saved. And well, my own children, of course, weren't even born. So where do we draw the line? And of course, it could have happened last night. I wish it would have happened last night, but it didn't. So today is a day that I can give the gospel. Today is the day that I can talk to uh, someone that's a part of the footstool preparation and see if I can get him out of that footstool. If I can get him into the bride of Christ and he can join us when the trumpet sounds. There's a lot of verses to go through. Do you think they're important? You know, even creation is waiting. Did you know that? Creation groans because the earth itself is waiting. And it's been waiting a lot longer than we have. It's been waiting ever since Adam and Eve sinned. It's been waiting ever since because when Adam and Eve sinned, this earth was cursed. The wrath of God cursed this earth. Not the earth's fault, of course. Romans 8. (laughs) Waiting. Waiting is fun. I like waiting. Waiting, um, I used to be a waiter, actually. (laughs) I don't think I would ever do that again, but, um, you know, the walking by faith is is obviously what we're called to do, And, and there's nothing more frustrating humanly, but glorious biblically, when God takes all the circumstances out of your hands and it says there's nothing you can do. <laughs> Just wait. Stand fast and watch the salvation of the Lord. Because as long as things are in your hands, or as long as you think things are in your hands, as long as you think that, well, I can do something, I can fix this, I can, I can make it right, I can, 
that whole mentality of I can, stop. God's the one that's working in and through you to willing to do of his good pleasure. Stop. Walk by faith. Watch what God's doing. Wait for God. Wait for God. All right. So in Romans 8, 23, um, we, not only this, but we also. So the not only this is talking about um, creation. Verse 19 says, the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That right there, that's your environmental policy right there. Okay? You want to bless creation? Get people saved. You want to bless creation? The curse upon this earth is not American industry. It's not uh, fossil fuels. The curse upon this earth is the sin of Adam and Eve and the, the judicial wrath of God upon this earth. Okay? And there's a fix for that. And it's not carbon credits. The fix for this is the revelation of the sons of God. Actually, there's a new heavens and new earth on the way, but it says, waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And so the earth will have its redemption when we have our revelation in Christ. And all things are renewed for the millennial kingdom, and then all things are renewed by fire. There's new heavens and new earth on the way after the millennium. So the creation's waiting. We also are waiting. Verse 23, not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So we too are waiting. So Jesus is waiting. We're waiting. If we complain about waiting, we need to stop and say, well, wait a minute, Jesus is still waiting, so I guess I can wait too. Did you notice the day you got saved, nothing happened to your body? Your soul was redeemed. Your, your, your human spirit was made alive. But not one thing happened. You're, you would think, wouldn't that be great if I could just get raptured right there, believe in Jesus and get a resurrected body on the spot, and then never sin again? <laughs> okay? That's not how he designed it. He saved your soul. He made your human spirit alive, and he left your body the way it was, fallen the sin nature inside of you that's whispering all kinds of horrible things. And that's a blessing because it teaches us to walk by faith and trust in Him all day, every day. We have this treasure in earth and vessel so that the grace is from Him and not from ourselves. And so we can wait. And we, can, and we groan while we're waiting. And, and groaning, <laughs> as the years go by, the groaning deepens. All right, so we, we wait. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, more waiting. Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. See, because he's the real judge anyway. Who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. So if you want to go around and be a busybody and judge everybody, that's not your place and this is not the time. He's waiting, we're waiting the bride is waiting. Galatians 5.5 5. We through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. We're waiting. We don't have perfect government yet. We don't have perfect environment yet. We don't have sinless bodies yet. 
We don't have uh, Satan bound yet. We don't have, there's a whole lot of things we don't have yet. But that's okay. Because today is a day of grace and we can keep looking forward and keep serving God. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we wait. From which we wait for a Savior. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not grudgingly waiting. It's not gritting your teeth and tapping your foot waiting. You know, I think sometimes we wait, but we're really just putting up with it, passing time. That's not eagerly anticipating waiting with joy, which we're called to do. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, how you turn to God from idols. You know, what's your testimony? When did you turn to God? When is it that you uh, were delivered from darkness into light? And, um, you know, some were saved at an older age, some were saved at a younger age. I was four. You know, I didn't have the, all the glorious stories to tell of my drunken life chasing women and all that stuff before I found Jesus. And then, you know, and the point isn't to tell those stories anyway. But the point is, is that when you turn to Christ from your futile way of life, you become a waiter. And so for the Thessalonians here, uh, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we're saved, we're serving, and we're waiting. That's the Christian walk right there. He's going to come and He's going to deliver us from the wrath to come. We don't have to worry about Antichrist. We don't have to worry about tribulation. We don't have to worry about all that stuff. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Premillennial rapture of the church, pre-tribulational rapture of the church. James 5, 7 and 8. Better than being a waiter is being a farmer. James 5. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil. See, that's not me. I'm a city boy. I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and I, I am not a gardener, a farmer, or any other kind of agricultural anything. You know, I put a seed in a kindergarten. I put a seed in a little styrofoam cup, a Dixie cup thing with soil in it, watered it, put it in the window. Nothing ever. <laughs> My mother was heartbroken. I was like, okay. But it's true, from what I understand, is you don't just put a seed in there and then get a tree popping up the next day. You have to wait. Things take time as they're buried and as they are resurrected. So the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and late rains. Well, that takes time. That, that, a season have got, has gone by there. So you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. It's near. Do you believe that? You think he's lying? It's 2,000 years ago he said it was near. How, how much nearer do you think it is today? It's near. The fact is it could have come any, any one of those days in between then and now, and it can come today. It might be 10,000 years from now. I hope not. I think it's today. And I'm going to live my life as if it is today. Because my Savior is waiting, I'm waiting. We all should be waiting. In Jude 21... Keep yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. 
waiting anxiously. This could be the day, and I pray that it is. Likewise, Jesus is waiting, waiting for the footstool, waiting for his enemies to be made, a footstool for his feet. This actually goes all the way back to David. David prophesied this a thousand years ahead of time. A thousand years before Jesus walked this earth, David uttered this prophecy. In Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until the Lord says to my Lord, isn't this beautiful? David calls him Lord. And Jesus, he uses this and leaves the Pharisees flummoxed. No answer. You know, because they call him the son of David. Well, then if he's the son of David, how does David call him Lord? How does he have a descendant that is his Lord? And how does he have a descendant that preceded him? The Lord says to my Lord. So this is God the Father speaking to God the Son. And we understand this in Trinity. And we understand this as God the Son before the foundation of the world. The plan was put in effect at the Eternal Life Conference. So the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so there's a time that he's not seated. And then there's a time he's invited to be seated. And then there's a time that he's going to be invited to leave his seat to go forth and rule in the midst of his enemies once they are fashioned into a footstool. All right, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And what happens next? The Lord will stretch forth your... Now, the author of Hebrews doesn't go here, but David does in Psalm 110. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And so Jesus will leave, once his footstool is ready, he will leave heaven again to come back to this earth. And you know what? It's not going to be babe in the manger humility again. He's going to come to conquer. The gates of heaven are going to be open. He will descend on a white horse with a sword. And we're going to follow on white horses as well. We're coming to conquer. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Man, what a day this is going to be. In resurrected glory. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So it's not just the author of Hebrews that's blending these issues. The issue of priestly function, the issue of judicial function, the, uh, the ruling in the midst of your enemies, they're all combined in the person of Jesus Christ. And David wrote of this in Psalm 110. All right. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That's Psalm 110, all right? Six or seven verses. That's what we have to look forward to when our Savior comes at his second advent. So it's all about the waiting. The disciples struggled in waiting. Acts chapter 1 and verse 7. And I don't blame him. I'm the last one to criticize Peter or any of these other knuckleheads, right? Because I would have been worse. We all would have been worse. These guys, Peter left his fishing boat. He left his business, left all the wealth that he had, multiple boats in a fleet with slaves. 
left all that, multiple houses, houses in Capernaum, houses in Jerusalem. I mean, they had, uh, they had business means, left all that to follow Jesus, to walk around and minister with grace giving to support them. And then he went and died on them. And they're left in the upper room and they're just devastated. And then, and then he shows up again, which he'd really told them about ahead of time and they shouldn't have been so freaked out and, and faithless, but they were. They were without faith, men of little faith. In, even at the resurrection, they finally started to catch on. Okay. And then he has 40 days of resurrection ministry and they're growing impatient, which they've been through the whole process. And so now they're finally getting impatient and saying, all right, Lord, you put us through all this. Can we get the kingdom now? Right? And so, um, yeah, so this is how the book of Acts begins, or what I like to call the book, the second Theophilus. The book, the gospel of Luke is first Theophilus. The the book of Acts is second Theophilus. And uh, this is now the account of the apostles So about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So he had a 40 day teaching ministry about the kingdom. In his resurrected glory he's teaching Bible class about the coming kingdom. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. All about the waiting. Wait for what the Father had promised. They're going to have to wait 10 days in Jerusalem. Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. So you heard uh, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And you can see their impatience. <clears throat> can we have the kingdom now? All right. Can't have the kingdom yet. By the way, does the church get the kingdom? Israel. It's the kingdom of Israel. Don't ever lose sight of that. So he said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Not even the Son. Not even the angels. When the kingdom comes, that second advent, only the Father knows the timetable for that. Jesus in His humanity did not know. He says, but you, in contrast to what Israel has to look forward to, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Here's the church's assignment. The kingdom will come when Christ comes back. We're not in the kingdom. We're not building the kingdom. The kingdom is heavenly. We're a heavenly people. We want to be clear on this. There's so much bad doctrine out there about the kingdom. It's the Father's good business. So the Son Himself is waiting. We're waiting. The Son's waiting. And in His humanity, not even the Son knows. Matthew 24, 36. I can save you a lot of money at the Christian bookstore. <clears throat> they're going out of business anyway, but I can save you a lot of money at the Christian bookstore because it's very common that there'll be a book on the shelf where the author tells you that he knows the day and the hour. 
because he's smart or clever or whatever. He's, he's unlocked a code. He's, uh, he's found something that everybody else has missed for the last 2,000 years. Or a spirit has revealed it to him. That's dangerous. What demons are you listening to? All right. This verse says, nobody knows. No man, no angel. So I can save you a lot of money if you don't, don't even buy those kind of books. <clears throat> of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Remember, Jesus Christ in His kenosis, He emptied Himself. He stopped using His omniscience. <clears throat> so in deity, of course, God the Son knows. But in humanity, through the kenosis, He stopped using His omniscience, which means He was born of a virgin, and for His whole physical life, He only knew what He learned in His physical life. He only knew what He learned from His humanity as He walked this earth. And nowhere in that whole walk, death, resurrection, everything, did the Father reveal to Him when the kingdom's coming, when second advent will commence. Only the Father. The Father has kept that to Himself. All right. We'll come back in two weeks and tackle verse 14, Hebrews 10, 14. Let me just tease it here. Appreciate Randy Blair... uh, taking next Sunday for me. All right. Again, it seems rather redundant, repetitive. Isn't this what he said in verse 10? He says it again in verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Spoke of sanctification. Now he's going to link it to perfection. So we'll pick up on this next week. Lord, no, two weeks. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. I thank you for this age of waiting. What a joy, Father. And while we're waiting, we're not doing nothing. We're going to the far ends of this earth, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we're proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. And so, Father, I thank you that we have this as our clear understanding from your word that our Savior likewise is waiting, and He too is doing plenty, Father. He's the high priest of our confession. He's interceding for the saints. He's, he's leading and directing every lampstand. He's functioning as the Melchizedek high priest. So he's, uh, he's seated at your right hand, but He's very active in this current time of waiting, and I thank You for that. I pray that we might learn what these principles are and how we apply them ourselves as we are seated at His right hand, even as He is seated at Your right hand. And Father, I thank you for a body of believers that are hungry to be fed the Word of God, that uh, have not chosen a ministry based upon the, the fun and games or the entertainment or the, the flash or the sizzle. They want to be fed. They want a little here, a little there, line upon line, precept upon precept. They want the Word of God to build them up in the faith and strengthen them in the inner man. And I pray on this day, that the Word of God will be alive and powerful. Feed us and continue to work in us. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.